You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, man. It's good to see y'all in worship. If you're watching online, I'm glad you're joining with us in worship that way as well. Hey, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Esther as we continue our series through the book, the Bible. And I want to say thank you to Richard for dominating last week and preaching, man. Appreciate that. Did a great job. Um, we're going to be in Esther this morning, following up uh, the book of Nehemiah. You know, Christmas, all the gifts that are given, it's interesting to think about how as you go through different seasons of life, or enter a new age, typically, hopefully, the gifts change, right? Like, of course, I'm finding that as a dad, sometimes like the things that I want to get my son, maybe they're actually, I want to get them for me, you know what I'm saying? Like, you want to get a sword or like a fishing pole or something, right? Like, um, a sword. I mean, like a fake sword, not a real sword. Um, but it's funny how gifts change and they should change over time. And it's funny how your desires change. I was talking to a family friend um, the other day, we were friends with the Whites, and well, a lot of people, but that's one example. I was talking to their daughter, Autumn, and uh, Autumn was saying, I was telling her a little bit about my sermon, and she said that. I guess two or three years ago, I'm totally like just telling y'all's business, but <laughs> Shanda's like, don't play, bro. <laughs> like two or three years ago, y'all got her um, some bedding for Christmas and she said she was like, almost cried about it. Maybe she did cry, I don't know. She was so upset about, she got bedding, like how lame is that? Well now Autumn uh, has moved out and has her own place and she told me she's asked her parents for a screen door for her house. And she's super excited about the potential of a screen door. And I was like, welcome to adulthood, right? Like, I think when you ask for a screen door for Christmas, you're officially an adult. Like, <laughs> that's just, that's how it works, right? But as, as you change and get older, variety is a good thing, right? So again, it's a good thing that the gifts change. Variety is always a good thing. I think about scripture and I'm grateful that we have variety in the different genres of scripture. So the epistles, you've got this kind of logical flow or the Psalms or these beautiful poetic lyrics. You also have throughout scripture stories. Well, the book of Esther, speaking of variety, is straight up a story. Like you could, you could preach it different ways that Pastor David and I talked and we both agreed. You, you really have to tell the whole story. And so as we're looking at the book of Esther this morning, uh, and again, like the different variety God's given us of different books in scripture, we're gonna lean into this is just a classic story. You got a protagonist, an antagonist, and there's some fun things about it. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at the whole story and along the way, there are for sure some golden nuggets you could write down. And at the end, we'll kind of look at it in its entirety of what God is saying in this story. Now, it's interesting, Esther chapter one, it begins with a party. So already we got a good story going on, right? And this is not just any party. This is a party that would make a frat party look like a preschool Christmas party or like the senior adult game night here at the church, okay? This is a party, all right? All right, so everybody load up in the venue station wagon we're gonna roll up or roll up to the party. Can you guys hear the bass thumping? All right, here we go. What other party would we roll up to than the party of the king? King Ahasuerus, also known in other places as Xerxes I, King Ahasuerus is throwing a party. Now, by the way, he's the king uh, from India all the way to Ethiopia. So this dude's got some territory, all right? This guy has some land. Look at verse four. 
By the way, I wanna give you a little heads up so if you're like, what's going on here? As we read through, there's no way uh, we can like read the entire book and do some sermon points and stuff. And so we're gonna kind of be skimming along across the top of the water, so to speak. And so I'm gonna try to point out to you what verses we're in. So be ready to, to flip quick. All right, here we go. So in verse four, it says, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. You talk about a party. Hey, y'all, 180 days, I'm gonna show y'all how awesome I am. <laughs> like, a party and also a little bit of arrogance, right? You're gonna show the splendor and his pomp for 180 days. And at the end of it, it says towards the end of verse five, he threw a feast that lasted for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And just to kind of, I love it, a, st- a good story doesn't just tell you, it shows you to get a picture of how lavish and like, I can't say that, it's like, uh, <laughs> trying to like keep it G. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I won't say it. How lavish this party is. Look at verse uh, seven. It says, or, sorry, verse six. They've got white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold. <laughs> like, what's up to my crib, y'all? Like, Charlie's trying to sell some real estate. He's like, what's up? We got a couch of gold up in here, right? Like, you're, you're not at a party if you don't have a couch of gold, all right? College students, y'all been going to some lame parties. They got a couch of gold up in here. It says a mosaic pavement of porphyry. I don't even know what that is. Uh, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. And listen to this. Drinks were served in golden vessels. <laughs> like this dude is just trying to show how awesome he is. Like, would you like a glass of wine in my gold vessel, all right? This dude's not playing around. They have all kinds of different vessels. Verse eight, drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. So the, run, the one drinking rule they had at this party was, we're not gonna make you drink. This is a crazy party. It says, uh, the rest of verse eight, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So the really, the really one rule of this party is, hey, y'all just do what y'all want. <laughs> This is a recipe for a disaster. <laughs> and who else but the king? It says, verse 10, on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you reckon, <laughs> right? So he's drunk. He calls in front of all his buddies, he, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti, so his wife, the queen, before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, does it seem surprising that the queen did not want to go in there? Ladies, just think about this. I mean, maybe don't want to think about it, but like your husband has been throwing a party with all his buddies for first 180 days showing how awesome he is. (laughs) And then a party for seven days saying, y'all drink as much as you want, do whatever you want. And at the end of that, your husband's like, hey, call my wife in here. I want to show them how fine she is. Is it a surprise that she says, uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going in there. He gets ticked off at this. He's, again, he's in a drunken rage. So he's infuriated that the queen won't listen to him, that she won't come in. So he decides to call in his wise men who are, again, quote, wise men, his drunken buddies who are around him, they're gonna talk about what they should do because Queen Vashti is not listening. 
And here's what they begin to talk about. Verse 17 says, they're, they're talking about what she's done. Actually, let's look at verse uh, 16. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. So he's saying, King, your wife just didn't offend you. She offended everybody. <laughs> These are not good people to have around you, all right? For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt or disdain. And they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. <laughs> so these, these quote wise men are saying to, to King Ahasuerus, look, bro, we gotta, we gotta lay the law down because other women are gonna hear about what Queen Vashti did and we need some respect up in here. So the king made a law. Verse 18, excuse me, verse 19, kind of halfway through, it says, Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than her. So they, they make this law, you know what? Just to make a point so that the men can get some respect, tell Queen Vashti, she can't ever see you again. And let all the women know that's what happened. So they respect their husbands. <laughs> I feel like all the women are laughing. All the men are like, what is going on? <laughs> As I'm watching y'all. What does this tell us about King Xerxes? <laughs> yeah. Good job, Brennan. Yeah, this is not a good dude. He's, he's, a, he's a drunkard and he has a really low view of women, right? And he's kind of impulsive. Erase the word kind of. He's impulsive. My wife didn't come in when I asked her to come in. She can never see me again. <laughs> Whoa, hey, like slightly impulsive, slightly overreactive. You know, the reality is when you, when, um, when a person is in a drunken rage, typically when the, when the hangover, whatever subsides, they typically have some regret, right? To kind of shift the scene too in chapter two, that's what happened. It says, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had been decreed. So he sobers up and remembers, oh man, I told her she could never see me again. And he decides, I, I kind of would like a queen. <laughs> I kind of would like a wife. So sure enough, in, we see in chapter two, they decide they're gonna hold this massive beauty pageant. Again, from India to Ethiopia, large swath of land, to see who is the most beautiful woman in the eyes of King Xerxes, of King Ahasuerus. So who's the most beautiful woman? Whoever he picks, he can pick any woman he wants. That gets, she gets to be the queen. Jump to verse five with me. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hasa, uh, sorry, Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. So this makes them what? Cousins, right? So he's in Mordecai, because he's older, he's like an uncle to Esther, but they're really cousins. That's what's going on here. It says, um, the daughter of his uncle, I'm in verse seven, for she had neither father nor mother. The young, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own 
daughter. So the, the author's giving us a hint to what's going on there. Esther's beautiful to look at, beautiful in figure. So she gets pulled into this beauty pageant because they're trying to, it sounds terrible because it is terrible. They're trying to collect all the most beautiful women in the land to see which one the king wants to take as his queen. And it's interesting, as she becomes, uh, starts getting involved in this beauty pageant, Mordecai tells her, don't let anyone know of the people that you belong to. So don't let people know that you're a Jew. Don't let people know that you believe in God, that you are a God-fearer. She goes into this and verse um, 12 tells us, they spend six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Ladies, can you imagine spending a year prepping for one single date? That's crazy. One year just in beauty prep so that when she stands before the king, she can be the most beautiful. I, just to not make light of this, to be, and I won't go too uh, into detail parents, but essentially they get one night with the king. This is, this is essentially rape. Like he brings in one night after another, different lady, Whoever he likes the most, that's who's gonna keep as his wife. So this is not like, ah, who's gonna be the queen as much as like, it's kind of dark. Y'all tracking with that? Well, Esther, lo and behold, as many of you know, she really was beautiful apparently and the king ends up picking her. Verse 17 of chapter two, it says, the king loved Esther more than all the women and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he made her the queen. What a lucky girl, right? The guy who told his wife because she wouldn't come in to see him, you can never see me again. You're dead to me, essentially. Esther gets to be his queen. Wow, what a lucky girl. Not. Now, it's interesting, took this kind of away, in verses 19 through 23, Mordecai, again, her cousin, like an uncle to her, Mordecai uh, basically foils a plot that these two men were plotting to kill King Ahasuerus, kill King Xerxes. He intervened, he stopped it because he he got the, the news to the right people and it was stopped. So the author tells us that in verses 19 through 23, but we're not really, we don't really know what to do with it yet in the story. It's kind of this little thing. If you were in a movie watching it, you would go, huh, that was weird. Like, what did that have to do with anything? But you need to tuck that away in your brain for a moment later. Now, this is where the story gets really interesting. Chapter three, this is kind of our third scene. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Gagai. So this is a Gagai. He's coming from King Agag, who King Saul was supposed to kill, but didn't. He disobeyed God when he didn't do that. So this, these are like known longtime enemies of the people of God, of the Jews. So he appoints him, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. By the way, there's nothing about being a Jew that would have prevented him from bowing down and showing honor. He wasn't worshiping Haman, but apparently Mordecai just thought Haman was not worth showing respect. He did not agree with him being in the position that he was. Verse three, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? In other words, like, 
dude, just bow down. Like, what's your problem? Verse four, and when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Did you catch that? Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. So every day Haman walks by Mordecai and Mordecai is like, nope, not bowing down, not paying honor. It ticks Haman off so bad. He doesn't want to just kill Mordecai. Who does he want to kill? All the Jews, everyone who's like Mordecai, he says, they've got to die. Talk about a dude with an anger problem. (laughs) Talk about a dude who says, you better show me some respect. Like, you think your boss is bad. Man, like this dude, he says, it's all about me. If you don't bow down to me when, when I walk down, sorry, when I walk by, we're gonna have a problem. So sure enough, we see in really the verse of uh, the rest of chapter three that he goes to the king and basically says, look, king, there's the people. They don't do your kingdom well. They dishonor your name, O king. So you know what? We need to kill these people. Long story short, King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, signs off on this plot to kill all the Jews from India to Ethiopia. They're gonna, verse 13 says, to destroy, to kill, I'm in chapter three, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one single day. Then the end of that chapter, verse, the end of verse 15, it says, And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Man, what a a sick picture there of the word goes out that, hey, there's coming a day very soon that we're all gonna rile up, rise up, and we're gonna kill all the Jews, women and men, children, young and old. We're gonna kill them all. And Haman, who plotted this, sits down to have a drink with the king. It says that the city was thrown into an uproar. If this was a, a, a show or a movie, it would end with to be continued and it would you leave you like, what's gonna happen, right? Like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? What's going on here? You should be feeling that because what's gonna happen to the people of God? Better yet, what would happen to the world if it ended the messianic line? Remember, we've been studying as we've gone through Genesis to where we're even at now, the coming one who would crush the head of the serpent would be brought up through the people of Israel, through the tribe of Judah. If they're all killed, what happens to the coming savior of the world? This is a problem, not just for them. This is a problem for us. If they're not rescued, if they're not saved, Chapter four, understand, this is kind of a fourth scene. Mordecai is weeping. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. And verse three of chapter four, it says, and in every province, whether the king's command and his decree, or wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth, sorry, sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, I don't know what that is. (laughs) I'm gonna summarize some of this so we can make sure we we get all this good story. But Esther 
seeks to find out, I'm in chapter four, like, hey, what's going on with Mordecai? Why is he, he spazzing out? And Mordecai sends a copy of the written decree to Esther and says, hey, show it to her. Let her see what's going on. What's gonna happen to God's people? And he says in verse eight, uh, command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. So Esther, or excuse me, Mordecai sends word to Esther, hey, go into the king and plead with him, beg him that he won't kill all of your people. Verse 11, she sends back word to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. She says, I haven't been called in to see the king in 30 days. It's a really solid, really strong marriage relationship, you can tell. I haven't got to see the king in 30 days. And if I go in there and he doesn't accept me, he doesn't extend his golden scepter, he'll kill me. I'll have to be killed according to the law. So they send that message to Mordecai and here's what he replies back, verse 13. Don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. It takes some humility, doesn't it? We don't want to have a false understanding of Esther. She, like up to this point, had, has not talked about who she is as a Jew, as a believer in God at all. But this tough situation is, is, is molding her, shaping her. And where she really could have been like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to risk my life. They can figure it out. She's saying, I'm, if I perish, I perish. Like I'm willing to put their needs before my own. So y'all pray, y'all fast. Can you imagine those three days where all the people, all the Jews, India to Ethiopia begin to pray and to fast? God, would you protect the queen? Would you give her favor when she goes to see the king? Chapter five says the third day, put on her royal robes. She walked in before the king, into the king's quarters. Can you imagine that moment when she's standing before the king, they lock eyes and she's put herself in his hands. He can either say, nah, kill her. She just walked in here. I didn't invite her in here. Or he can hold out the golden scepter. Here. Imagine her heart beating her out of her chest. And the king says, all right, 
I'll see her. <laughs> I can imagine the guards are sitting there walking like, what is Esther doing, dude? She is crazy coming in here. Oh, come on in through. You lucky girl, <laughs> right? She goes in and so this is the epic moment. I mean, she's in, she made it in. He didn't kill her yet. And he said, hey, what do you want? I'll give you half the kingdom. So apparently he's in a good mood today. Like again, this guy, you never know, right? He's in a good mood. And she says, if it please the king, let the king and Haman, in verse four, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. So they have this feast, Haman, her, the king, kind of an odd feast. <laughs> verse seven, then Esther answered, because so, the king says, hey, I know this is not what you really want. I'm like, what is it you want? And she says, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I've prepared for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So, man, there's this weird tension of like, she's in. She, she's like if Mission Impossible. She's kind of got phase one down. She's with the king. But then like, we don't know, is she being patient? Is she being wise? Is she like getting gun shy? And she's like, I don't want to ask. I don't want to ask. Like, the clock is ticking. There's a day on the calendar they can look at on the calendar. All the Jews are going to die this day. What's going to happen to God's people? By the way, where is God? No mention of him. What's going to happen to the Messianic line? Something's got to give. Esther's got to step into this or they're all going to die. It's interesting. The, it's almost like the camera shifts. It's been focused on Esther and really her putting the needs of the people before herself, but still like what's going on here? The clock is ticking. And now it shifts to Haman. It's, he leaves the, the feast, verse nine. I'm gonna read all of this because this is just too good. Haman went out that day, joyful and glad of heart. Because man, he's like, man, I'm dining with the king and the queen. Life is good, I'm killing it. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. this is not a guy I want to hang out with, right? First you go to his house and he's like, I'm going to tell you all how, how awesome I am. Like he got that from the King Xerxes, I think. But man, I'm going to tell you all how awesome I am. I'm going to tell you how many sons I have. I only got one, so I couldn't, I couldn't use that one. But um, he's, uh, he's saying how awesome he is. And then he's like, but there's this one guy that he won't bow down to me. This just really hurt my feelings. Hey, this, this is in all seriousness. One pastor said, those who want all the glory, me, 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 everybody tell me how awesome I am. Those who want all the glory, get all the misery. When it's always about you and you want everyone to just, oh man, you're so amazing, I love you. When there's one person that does it, it'll drive you insane. It's pride. Those who want all the glory, get all the misery. Even if it's just not about a person, when it's all about you, anytime the conversation is not about you, you're gonna be like, oh, man, gosh. Like, anyways, can we get it back on me right now, okay? 
It's a miserable way to live life. This dude had everything going for him, but because one guy wouldn't bow to him, he hated his life. It's prideful. So his wife says, you know what? Why don't you just make a gallows, wooden beam, 50 cubits high, and in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then joyfully go with the king to the feast. It says, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So he's like, you know what, babe? Can you just imagine, like, what a sick dinner conversation. You know what, babe? You're right. Let's just hang him tomorrow. I love you. It's going to be a good night. Psycho. So that night, they're hammering away on the gallows, but there's another kind of hammering going on in the king's mind that no one can hear but him. Verse, sorry, chapter six, verse one. It says, on that night, the king could not sleep. He's laying in bed, he can't sleep. So he does what some of us do. He needs a boring book. (laughs) He says, hey, get the book of memorable deeds. (laughs) It's a sure classic, right? Get the book of memorable deeds. They go and they read before the king. I guess when you're the king, you have people read to you when you can't sleep. And it was found written how Mordecai, okay, remember that story we talked about tucking away that seemed so random? It was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana, <laughs> another name that gets me, Big, what's up, Big Thana? Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So they start reading and they're not just reading any story, they're fine, think about how big the book must have been I mean, the book of memorable deeds, a lot of deeds going on from Ethiopia to India. And they read the story about Mordecai. Oh man, what a lucky guy. No, there's a theological word for that called providence. Maybe God is not absent. They begin to read about Mordecai and he's like, dude, Mordecai saved my life. Verse three, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who had attended him said, Nothing's been done. Verse four, and the king said, hey, who's in the court? So the idea is that he, maybe he hears someone in the court moving out there and he's like, man, maybe someone's come and uh, maybe they can help here. And he says, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, hey, Haman's in there standing in the court. So the king's like, perfect, Haman can help me with this. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? <laughs> and Haman said to himself, so he, again, he doesn't say this out loud. He says to himself, hmm, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? He wants all the glory, right? It's all about him. <laughs> And Haman said to the king, (laughs) for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, which that's kind of weird to me. (laughs) And the horse that the king has ridden on, whose head a royal crown is set. 
Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman's like, oh man, this is so epic. The king's about to honor me. And the king says, awesome, hurry, take the robes and the horse. I I love everything you said, as you have said. So don't leave anything out and do so to Mordecai the Jew. (laughs) This is poetic justice, right? This is awesome. Can you imagine Haman like, (laughs) are you kidding me? And he says, I love it. He says, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. It's like, Haman, I love it. Perfect. Everything you said, I want you to do that. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he addressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. <laughs> this is awesome, right? This is amazing stuff. God has a sense of humor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his mourning and with his hand, excuse me, and with his head covered. <laughs> and Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. So <laughs> my life is so terrible. While they were yet talking, verse 14, the king's eunuchs come and say, hey, Haman, there's another party for you. (laughs) By this time, I think Haman's going, I got a bad feeling about this, right? Esther throws this second party. The king again says, what's your request? Verse three, chapter seven. Then queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe. An enemy, and then she points her finger. This wicked Haman says, Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You reckon? He's been mad because Mordecai won't tremble before him, but now Haman's trembling before Queen Esther. It says, He, the king, verse seven, he arose in his wrath from the wine drinking. Again, the dude has a drinking problem, okay? Like he's got a drinking problem. He arose in his wrath. Well, Haman says he goes over and throws himself on the couch where Esther is and begs himself like, please, please, would you please not kill me? Please, please, please. Well, about that time, the king comes back in and sees Haman, what he thinks is making a move on Esther. And he's like, oh, and now this fool is gonna make a move on my wife. So what does he do? It says, they covered his head, verse, uh, into verse eight. They covered Haman's face, Haman, sorry. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, hey, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, by the way, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. The king said, perfect. Hang him on that. So they went and hung Haman, that is poetic justice. But the problem is there's still a decree to kill the people. 
So Esther again goes before the king. I would say, not, no, this is a fact. She's again putting herself out there, putting the needs of the people before her own. Because again, if she pushes with the king again, he could be like, you know what? I'm kind of drunk and in a bad mood. I'm gonna kill you too. So she puts herself at risk again. She felt, verse three of chapter eight, she fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. But verse four, he again holds out his golden scepter. So he again says, all right, I'm gonna listen. You have my ear. She goes on to say, uh, verse six, how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So he listens and he responds. Verse 11, chapter eight, they send out a royal message that the king was allowing, in verse 11, the king was allowing the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. So he says, look, I I sealed that last um, decree. I can't undo that decree, but we can make a new decree that says the Jews can fight. Y'all don't have to take this. Y'all can stand up, you can form, you can fight. These people are gonna try to annihilate you. So verse 16 of chapter eight, it says, The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So now all of a sudden people are like, people that are not Jews are like, yeah, dude, I'm a Jew because they're scared to death. They heard what happened to Haman. They heard what happened with the king and how he said the Jews could defend themselves. So now people are like, Oh yeah, God, Yahweh. Yeah, he's awesome, dude. Yeah, because they're scared to death. And sure enough, chapter nine, we see that no one could stand against them. Literally, that's what it says in chapter two. No one could stand, sorry, chapter nine, verse two. No one could stand against them. They struck down their enemies the reverse occurred. See, those that were hate, hated the Jews and were gonna kill them actually were in turn killed and defeated. Verse 22 they, of chapter nine, they end up having the Feast of Purim. They, they make it a holiday because of what happened. And it says, verse 22, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So what was to be a day of destruction ended up being a day of victory. What was to be a day of mourning ended up being a day of holiday, it says. Verse 25 says that, When it came, it's kind of giving a recap. It says that when Haman's plan came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head. We've talked about flipping the script. That's certainly what God did. You finish out chapter 10, the very last verse, it says that Mordecai, was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. God delivered his people. 
He saved them from death. He protected the messianic line. Now, I, I, we had, I had a whole book to cover today, so like, be, be gracious. We're almost done, I promise. <laughs> I think you're still with me, though. You still with me? All right. This is the best part, talking about the big idea. If you can look at the book of Esther, while the name God, the, the God is not mentioned in writing, you could, if you look at the book of Esther and the people's deliverance as a crime scene, you could say that God's fingerprints are all over it. <laughs> They're all over it. From the position of Esther as queen at just the right time to Mordecai foiling the plot to kill the king and then challenging Esther at just the right time to the king, not being able to sleep and then hearing of Mordecai, the Jew, rescuing him to Haman's perfect timing coming in the king's court, ironic timing. His fingerprints of deliverance are all over this. See, sometimes the movement of God is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can see what it's doing. You can't see it, but you can feel it. You can sense it. Something's going on here. All through the story, God is moving. While Esther is a hero, she's the protagonist. God was at work to save his people. So to say it this way, what happened when Esther humbled herself so put the needs of the people before her own to go into the king to, to try to stop the plan of Haman? What happened? She got to join in on what God was already doing. So what do you mean by that? Do you remember in chapter four, I think the author, God, was giving us a hint when Mordecai told Esther, when she was like, I don't wanna go in, I may be killed. And Mordecai told Esther, if you don't go in to do this, salvation will rise from somewhere else. God's gonna rescue the people. God's gonna protect the messianic line. God's sending a savior, his name is Jesus. He's going to do that. But Esther, if you will humble yourself, put the needs of the people before you all, and if you'll lean in, you're gonna get to join into what God is doing. You see that? So what does this mean for us? What happens when we humble ourselves to bless other people? What happens when we put ourselves at risk for the benefit of others, you get to join in in what God is already doing. Amen. You don't always get to see it. You may not see it on this earth, but when you lean into humility, you get to join in what God is already doing. You can say it this way real simply. I've already said it. When you lean in, you get to join in. When you lean into humility, you get to join in. So when you lean into that difficulty, that hesitancy to share the gospel with people at work and that awkwardness, when you lean in, lean in you get to join in and God drawing them to himself. When you lean in to those difficult conversations with your peers at school of like, man, I wanna tell them about Jesus. I wanna invite them to church, but I don't wanna look stupid. When you lean in, you get to join in and God already drawing them to himself. When you go and eat lunch in the workroom with the weird person at your work who's super awkward and you lean in and try to befriend them and show them 
love of Jesus, you're, you're actually not starting something. No, you're joining in what God is already doing. When you go and sit with the awkward kid at lunch or in the sub or wherever, and like, man, they're alone. I'm gonna go be a friend. Of them. I'm gonna go and share the love of Christ, even just by my presence. When you lean into that difficulty, you're joining in what God is already doing because God is certainly already at work. He's always working. That's absolutely what Esther found. When you lean in to those humble moments with your spouse and you're willing to say, man, I'm sorry that was on me. Or as a man, you begin to lean in and try to lead your wife like Christ loves the church and humble yourself in so doing. When you do that, you're joining in what God is already doing in your marriage. When parents, when you lean in and humbly serve your kids, even when you're so sick of watching that movie for the 1400th time, you're gonna watch it one more time because they wanna watch it one more time. When you lean in, ultimately you get to join in and what God is doing in their life as you live humbly and put their needs before your own. When we lean in to putting others before ourselves and make ourselves not the priority like Haman, we get to join in what God is doing. And you say, yeah, but, but my, my past, man, like I can't lean in now because I have a broken past. Esther would say, I was so silent about my faith. People, no one knew I was a Jew, but God doesn't use perfect people. He uses imperfect people for his perfect plans. So don't let your past prevent you. Or maybe you say, yeah, but our situation is flat out hopeless. Like, why would I lean in to difficulty? Why would I lean in to humility? Why would I leave in to being a servant when it seems flat out hopeless? Esther would tell you, God loves it when the situation is hopeless. He loves it when the odds are stacked against him because they're never stacked against him. It only looks like it. And when it's stacked against him, he gets to show off how incredible and powerful he is. Maybe you say, yeah, but the timing just seems off. Maybe I should wait a little longer. I don't know if this is the right time. Esther would say what Mordecai said to her. How do you know that God hasn't brought you to this situation, to these people, to this job, to this realm of influence for such a time as this? So don't wait. No, lean in so you can join in. Maybe you say, hey, but I don't know where God is. It seems like God is nowhere to be found. Esther may say, hey, he may not be on the pages of the book in this particular chapter of your life, but he's certainly moving. When you can't see his hand, you can still trust his heart, even when you can't see him. So lean in so you can join in with what God is doing, even when it's difficult. Put others before yourself. Be humble so you can join in what God is doing. And here's what's cool. When you lean in, you get to join in to, to God drawing people to himself, to Jesus, the true and better one. What do I mean by that? Jesus is the true and better Esther. And that, yes, Esther was willing to go to the king to risk her life for the sake of the people. But Jesus, the king, didn't just go before a king. He went to the cross knowing it wasn't just a possibility he would die, knowing he would die for the sake of sinful, rebellious people. He risked it all and gave it all for us. Jesus is the true and better King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, in that he's like Xerxes in that Xerxes flipped the evil plan of Haman on its head. And Jesus, King Jesus, flipped the evil plan of Satan on its head. See, at the cross, Satan's like, ha, 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 I got you. And Jesus like, psych, fool, I just conquered you and provided salvation to all of God's people. Flipped it on its head. You lose, sucker. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting weird. <laughs> getting fired up. He's not just the better Xerxes, he's the better Mordecai. And that the book ends in saying that Mordecai sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to his people. Jesus is the true and better Mordecai and that Jesus speaks 
peace to us through the blood of his cross. Because of the cross, we can have right relationship with him and know the peace that surpasses all understanding. Because Jesus leaned into the cross, we get to join in salvation. And when we live like him, and really you can say we're living like Esther, but more so when we lean into humility and difficulty, we're actually living like Jesus and joining in in the work God is doing to draw others to himself. Oh, that we who have experienced the grace of Jesus would begin to lean in and be like Jesus. Church, let's lean in so we can join in. Y'all stand and sing with us. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 